Wonderful. All right. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and let's go to 1 Peter. All right. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be. Of course, going through this epistle on Sunday mornings. And as you come to this, back to this book of the Bible with me this morning, uh, keep in mind the purpose of Peter's writing. Remember, he is writing to strengthen the brethren just as Jesus told him to do so in Luke 22 and verse 32 when Jesus said, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So Peter's doing just that. He is strengthening the brethren. He is trying to strengthen and give hope to believers. But why do they need it so badly at this moment? Because understand in this time of, of history in the first century, these precious believers were really going through the ringer. Uh, they were suffering greatly. They were suffering persecution, suffering great loss, being taken to prison, no doubt tortured and put to death, all from the cruel hand of Nero. So listen, at this moment, that's what they're going through. And if you and I were going through that, we would need great strength as well, would we not? Absolutely. But where were they going to find the strength that they need? Well, it's going to be found from the pen of Peter as he sits down to give them great strength. Hope. Uh, just hope through the fiery trials that they're facing, quite literally, by the way. Uh, just great hope through the pain, just great hope just for the next day. And be reminded that a hope that we are speaking of as we look through this book of the Bible is not a, well, let's just cross our fingers and just hope this works out type of thing. That's not hope, people. That's wishful thinking. That's not real hope. You see, our real hope that we have to lean on and stand upon is a confident assurance, not in ourselves, but in our Savior. It's a confident assurance in the promises and person of God. That's real hope. And that's what they needed. And by the way, we need it too. Still need it today. Hope in the Lord. And the good thing is for us, the good news for us today is we can find it in the same place. Great hope they found. We can find it in the same place as well as we look into the Word of God. We can find great hope from the eternal pages of Scripture because the Bible is never outdated. It's relevant for every situation. And we have great sufficiency in the Scriptures. And you and I can trust our Bibles, all right? So you need some hope, need some strength today for your journey in this world. I want you to look to the Word of God. And find it there. So keep all that in mind as you go through and read through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, as he's strengthening the brethren. But as we come back to chapter 1 this morning, we're going to finish up a message we began last Sunday on this title of Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. So let's look back in our Bibles in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse number 10, and we'll read down through verse number 16, okay? Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand and when, uh, and I'm sorry, beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, verse number 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, 
not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for the privilege we have to read and to study the Word of God. I pray you'd help us to glean from it this morning, help us to grow because of it this morning, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just for information, but to know our God better. Help us, I pray, in this moment. Help me to preach, because I know without you I can do nothing. God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, again, as we read these verses and we jump into this message this morning, keep in mind these individuals to whom Peter is writing, they're struggling immensely, all right? And they're under some great, immense pressure and persecution. And when you find yourselves under that such of pressure and uh, relentless hardships, the temptation to do this is quite easy. The temptation to quit comes quite easy, does it not? When you're going through difficulty, pressure-filled day, you just want to throw in the towel. It's easy during those times to give in and to give up. You see, when things are going great, it's easy to stay the course. But, man, when it begins to veer a little bit, ah, I just don't know about this. You see, it's easy during that time to give up and, get, and give in and go back to the same old ways it used to be. And it may, this may be some, uh, some of the temptation maybe they were facing. And we kind of get that idea from verse 14, again, when it says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Uh, again, the idea behind the phrase fashioning yourselves means to conform one's self to a, another's pattern either through your thinking, through your mind, or through your character. But this is what the world at this moment was trying to do to these believers through the persecutions, uh, through the pressure they were facing of life, just to get them back to the old pattern of life that they walked in before. And be reminded once again, there is always pressure from the world, from your flesh, and from the devil to conform back to the world's way of living, back into the world's image. There's always that pressure to be conformed to that. Always has been and always will be. But how are we to stand against that? How are we to live right in a world gone wrong when the world wants us to do what is wrong, right? How do we do that? Well, we began looking at some motivations last Sunday. And the first one we saw quickly was this one, just as a reminder. But the first motivation we took note of was the coming of Christ. And this truth should have given these individuals uh, the motivation that they needed, the strength that they needed to live right in a world gone wrong. Now, be reminded, there were two comings of the Lord, right? Uh, just, this is just as a reminder as we move forward here. Uh, but the coming, uh, two comings of the Lord are these. Number one, the rapture. And this is when Jesus comes for his saints in the clouds. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And of course, the second coming when Jesus comes with his saints to the earth. Revelation chapter number 19. And though sometimes people use them interchangeably, they are separate events, separate future events. But we today are looking for the rapture. We are looking for Jesus to come in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with 
the Lord. And this hope, this confident assurance, that this truth should, should help us to live a pure and in a very impure world. Even as John said in 1 John 3 and verse 3, And every man that hath this hope, this hope of the coming of Christ in the clouds, hath this hope in him, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So let the coming of Christ let the return of Jesus be something that motivates you to just simply live right in a world gone wrong. But what else can we see from this text that should motivate us, help us to see, to live right in a world gone wrong? All right, number two. Let's see this. We'll see the last two points of this message this morning. But number two, the character of God. Now, when we say character here, what we're saying is, is well, who God is. And there are many characteristics that describe our great God. And it would take us forever to dive into them and look into them today. We'd be here for hours and hours and still not exhaust the great characteristics and attributes of our great God. But we could look at, we could look at His love for us. How the Bible says in 1 John four sixteen, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in God dwelleth in, uh, I'm sorry, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. We can look at the love of God is who he is. Aren't you glad that's who our God is? He's love. I'm thankful for that. We can look at his mercy in Luke chapter 6 verse 36. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. How many of you thank for the mercy of God this morning? Yeah, me too. Amen right there. We can look at God's graciousness in Psalm 116, verse 5. just plainly says, gracious is the Lord. What a statement. Uh, again, P Paul would say this to Titus in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. He is gracious to everyone. I'm thankful our God is gracious. We can see His righteousness in Psalm 129, verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He is the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4, 8. We can look at His omnipotence, meaning He is all-powerful. We can look at His omnipresence, meaning He is everywhere present at the same time. We can see His omniscience, meaning He knows everything from past, present, to future. He knows it all. We can see this in Revelation 1, 8. I am Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the beginning letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the end of the Greek alphabet. Meaning it'd be like saying, saying today, he's A to Z. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Look, we can sit here for hours and hours just, just listing his attributes and characteristics of our great God, but as we look at our text this morning, there's really one highlighted. And this one that's highlighted here, at least in the, in the immediate text, is this one. Look at it with me. Verse number 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. The characteristic that Peter points out to these dear believers in this moment, as he's beginning to write to them, this first chapter, is the holiness of God. And I want you to know folks cannot merely approach this characteristic of God without fear and trembling. 
Because every time you see someone in Scripture that has an encounter with the holiness of our holy God, they find themselves upon their faces, humbled, not even able to look upon the holiness of God. We'll read one of those instances in just a moment. But the holiness of God is a characteristic that just, it's, it's, it's unfathomable almost. You know everything about this great characteristic of God. But I do know this, that our great God in heaven is holy. And it encompasses the very essence of who He is. He is the holy one. You know, Isaiah had a great encounter with that, the holiness of God. And it's amazing what he wrote and penned for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says this in Isaiah 6, verse 1 through 5, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. Twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, it's interesting, after Isaiah had this encounter with the holiness of God, you will read, I believe it's 26 times in, in his book of Isaiah, you find this written, this phrase written, the Holy One of Israel. But after that encounter in, verse, in, verse, in chapter 6, it's 23, 23 times, yes, 23 times after chapter 6, you find that. I believe as he had an encounter with the Holy God, it changed his entire life and ministry. And you can't be the same when you have that encounter. But understand, as we see in, in Isaiah chapter number 6, I want you to know that in that text in Isaiah, uh, there is something that we with our English mind can uh, read several times, even a thousand times, and really not fully grasp the um, emphasis or maybe even the importance that Isaiah is trying to give. You see, in our English language, when we want to call attention to something that we deem is significant or we deem that is very important or that we want to really emphasize, we have different ways of doing that, right? Uh, who here, you, you give people cards for Christmas, uh, birthdays, anybody? One, seven, ten, twenty, about, okay, about thirty of you, all right. When you go and you pick out a, the perfect card, you want that Hallmark card, right? And uh, some of you may, your cards may be more uh, of humor, which that'd be me. I like to laugh, all right? Or others may be one more, more serious, whatever it may be. When you pick out that perfect card and you read the words of the author of that card and those words stand out to you, you want to emphasize some of those words. What do you do? Underline them. Or maybe you'll circle them. And if you really want to emphasize it, you underline it about 12 times, Right? Especially on the anniversary, and that card says, baby, I just want you to know I love you. And you underline love about 10 or 12 times, right? Yeah. You want to emphasize your love for her, right? 
That's what we do. Or if you're, you're handwriting or typing out a letter, whatever it may be, we'll, we want to emphasize a word, we'll put it in boldface, yes? Or um, we'll highlight it or something. We want to emphasize that word. Or maybe we'll put it in all caps, whatever it may be. But we want to emphasize. That's what we do, right? Well, in the Jewish mind, they did the same. They did uh, underlining. Uh, they did exclamation marks. You can find that in your Bible, of course. And it's all for emphasis. But with the Jewish mind, they would do something even more to show a greater emphasis. And it's this word. Repetition. Uh, they would repeat words for great emphasis. You can see Jesus did that in the New Testament. Right before he would make a statement, he would say, Verily, verily. Which means truly, truly, or amen, amen. You see, Jesus didn't need to wait for somebody to say amen at the end of his statement. He already knew it was true. Didn't need no validity. Amen. All right. But he would say amen at the very beginning. But every time he would emphasize that, that verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, that meant for those Jewish disciples to look at, look at him, what he's about to say, and perk up because he's got something very important and making an emphasis in that moment. He's emphasizing something. You see, even Paul did the same when he would write to the Galatian believers when he said, if any man preach another gospel, let him be accursed, anathema. And then he said it again, the very next verse, he said, and I say again unto you. He's not doing that because he forgot what he said. No, he's doing that for emphasis. This is what the Jewish mind would do. They would repeat themselves for emphasis. And I want you to know something. As you read your Bible... There is only one attribute of God that ever was raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. And though we love God's mercy, you don't find it say mercy, mercy, mercy. And though we are thankful for the grace and love of God, you don't find that repeated three times in a row. I know what the Bible declares from the very angels themselves is this word. That our God is holy, holy, holy. Now this characteristic of God, listen, consumes his very essence because God is holy. And because he is holy, understand something, he wants us to be the same. And this is a reason, a motivation for us to live right in a world gone wrong. Look at it again in verse number 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. And again, this word conversation here does not mean how we communicate merely with just our words. No, it goes much further and much larger than that. It encompasses all of life. Uh, this word conversation means in every manner of life or in every conduct or all conducts of life. In all behaviors of life, in everything we do, we're being commanded right here from Scripture, as Peter is telling these dear people, we should be holy. Now, does that mean we got to go be holier than thou type of people and look down at people from our noses so stuck up in the air we drown when it rains? No, that's not what that means. But it does mean to be set apart. It does mean set apart. And by the way, this setting apart is a lifelong process, what we call sanctification. And we're not going to dive into that today, but maybe we'll very soon. But here's what that is in a nutshell. 
Sanctification is that process where God makes you more like His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Bible says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Understand it's God's will. It is His purpose for every born-again believer to be conformed into the image of Jesus. He wants you and me to be more like Jesus. And so when we speak of this process of sanctification, the Lord uses all kinds of different ways to make us more like Him. And yes, even in the context of what we're talking about in 1 Peter, He does use trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, persecutions, and so much more. Because those times have a way of knocking off the rough edges to getting the junk out of our lives. They have a way of bringing us to Jesus. They have a way of drawing us closer to the Lord. They have a way of getting us back in the Bible. They have a way, listen, of getting us back into Church, I'm telling you, I've talked to people over the years who have gotten away from the Lord, went through a deep valley, and they finally get back to church, finally back in their Bible, finally getting closer to the Lord, and God's using them mightily today. But, but they had to, be, had, to, had to be go through a trying time to get there. God uses these things all for the purpose of making us more like Jesus. Understand God desires for us to be like the Lord. He desires us to be, yes, holy, set apart, not being conformed to this image of this world, but being conformed more to the image of Jesus. So, because He which hath called you is holy, that's who He is, you be the same. Be holy in all manner of conversation. As you look at the character of God, it should be a great motivation for all of us to live right in a world gone wrong. We should want to imitate our great God. And here's one way to do it. Imitate the Lord. You know, our world's full of imitation. Even people say, I just want to be free and do my own thing. Okay. And they go out and do the same thing somebody else is doing, imitating. <laughs> but every child of God ought to imitate. And be like their Heavenly Father. Be like the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what should motivate us to live right in a world gone wrong? Well, listen, Jesus is coming. That should motivate us. Uh, the character of God, He is holy, be ye holy. That should motivate us. And thirdly, and lastly from this message at least, is this one. The command of Scripture. And folks, as we read in verse number 16, I want you to know this should be the only reason we would ever need to live right in a world gone wrong. Look at verse number 16. Say with me the first four words of verse 16. Ready? Here it is. Because it is written. Say it again. Because it is written. Now look, this statement here, it carries great authority. And Peter, he is pointing to a greater authority than him. Listen, he's not pointing to an, his uh, authority as an apostle. He's not pointing to an apostolic 
authority like many of the charismatics want to do today, pointing to themselves. No, no, no. Peter didn't do that. Rather, he is claiming and pointing to an authority that even he as an apostle must put himself under and must obey and abide by. And that is this authority. You ready? The Word of God. Again, look at it. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He is pointing to the Word of God as our authority. Understand, even the Bible has authority over the devil himself. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? What did the Lord use to uh, fight, the, fight the devil? He could have just struck him down, of course, with his own word. He is a son of God. He can do what he wants. But what did he use? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 through 11, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in thy hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou shalt dash, dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. It is even our authority in our spiritual warfare. As we can see that in Ephesians chapter number 6 and verse 10 through 17. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God to may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, meaning because you fight these things, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take in the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and, here it is, listen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of of God. Listen, this Bible, our, our Bible, the Word of God carries and has great authority over the spiritual realms of things and it should have, should have authority in your life and mine because understand something. For believers, this Bible, our Bible, the Word of God is our sole authority for faith and practice, meaning for life and living. Our feelings is not our authority. Okay, let me make sure. I our feelings are not our authority. Denominations, not the authority. Association of churches, convention of churches, whatever it may be, not authorities. Priests, popes, preachers, they're not the authority. The authority is the Word of God. 
It is what dictates our lives. The Bible. And our duty as born-again believers, as dedicated believers, is to simply obey this very authority that we have in our laps today. That is our responsibility and duty to simply obey it. You see, before we were saved, we were, as the Bible says, children of disobedience by nature. The Bible says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in times past you walked, or patterned yourself, you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among, among them also we had our conversation in time past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So listen, this is what we were. We were simply children of uh, uh, disobedience. We were disobedient to God and to His Word. This is a natural response from our sinful nature. But as believers, we should have a desire to be obedient to the Word of God because that desire flows from the natural response of the new man, the new nature, if you will, that Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. And now please, don't, don't get confused this morning, though, when I say... When I say this, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect in all matters of obedience, okay? We still do struggle. I get that. I do understand that. And even Paul made that great testimony and statement in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. You can read that for yourself later. But he even made testimony to the fact that he struggled with that even. But yet there was still a desire, even in that struggle, to obey God and do what was right. So my question is this. Do we have that desire to obey the Word of God in our way? The Bible says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Uh, 2 John in verse 6, and this, and this is love, that we walk after His commandments. And this is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Uh, Peter said this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Pastor James would write to his, his people in James 1, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We must be obedient to the word of God. This is what God wants. It's really that simple. We must be obedient to, to the Lord. So, let me kind of narrow it down real quick this morning to make this last point as simple as I know how when it comes to living right and the world gone wrong, all right? One of the simplest steps to do so is this. What does the Bible say? All right? Great question to ask. What does the Bible say? Learning to live right and the world gone wrong, ask that question. Well, what, what, is, what does the Bible say? And then as you find out what it says, obey it. Obey it. Because listen, obeying the Word of God, obeying the Bible more, it should lead more to this. Look at verse 16. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. It kind of comes full circle there. This is what God wants us to be. Listen, if we obey and follow the, the Bible and obedience to it, it should make us more like Jesus, less like the world. And that's how we can live right in a world gone wrong. 
So my challenge to you is this. Get in your Bible. Read it. Study it. Believe it. Obey it. Obey it. I'm telling you, God will work in your life in ways you can't even understand and fathom because it's just simple obedience to the Word of God. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. Just determine to obey the Word of God. May God help us to be people who live right and a world gone wrong. So what's going to help with that? Well, if you're looking for the coming of Jesus, that'll help you with that. And by the way, you can come at any time. If you're looking at God, if you're looking at your Savior and trying to imitate Him, it'll help you with that. If you're in the Word of God and you're reading it and you're studying it and you're obeying it, it'll help you to live right in a world gone wrong. It will do it. Get in, your, get in the Bible. Not just for Bible knowledge's sake, but so you can know God better. So you can know God.